0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine the latest. Today, as it's claimed Ukraine shot down 13 so called kamikaze drones that targeted the capital, we hear how more support is coming from abroad. Plus, we're joined again by Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, who reflects on seeing the liberation of her son and a speech from Vladimir Zelensky firsthand.
1: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has
2: destabilized energy markets the world over.
1: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
0: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our team's reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 13th of December, day 249. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley and Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest military updates.
2: Well, hi, Claire. Hi, everybody. It's um, It's been a busy morning in uh, mainly Kiev, we think. 13 Shahid 136, uh, the Iranian-made drones. Um, Someone well, now clunkily titled One-Way Attack Drones by the British MOD. Um, other people call them kamikaze drones. They're loitering munitions. They're a drone. They send back pictures. they got a warhead. The, the operator can fly them into a target. So, yeah, you know... They're kind of kamikaze drones, really. But anyway, the drones we all know about, the 136 drones, um, 13 attacks this morning across Kyiv. Now, President Zelensky says they were all shot down. A quote this morning "He said the terrorists began this morning with 13 shahids. All 13 were shot down by Ukrainian air defence, according to preliminary information. Well done, guys. I'm proud, he said this morning. Um, two administrative buildings were damaged, we believe. City officials said uh, no uh, casualties, So a spokesperson for Kyiv's rescue services, Svetlana Vodlaga, said that there were no no deaths at the moment. Um, That's all we have. We think the attack has finished. That seems to be it for now. Now, this comes on the back. So in recent weeks, there has been a a, a marked decrease in these type of attacks. We think down to the fact that Russia had had burnt through their stock of these uh, of these drones. A couple of weeks ago, we think they got another um, circa 150. Uh, from Iran, and we were expecting, uh, expecting them to be uh, to be used. And then last week, was it last week or the week before, end of the week before, there was another, another barrage using, uh, using these drones as well as air-launched cruise missiles, etc., etc. So today sort of follows that pattern. We think this was only the Shahid-136 drones uh, rather than um, any other ballistic missiles, short-range ballistic missiles or, or cruise missiles or anything else. Um, and we think the attack is finished, but we will obviously be uh, keeping an eye on that elsewhere uh so russia have they launched a missile they they hit the the heads on regional administrative building which was when russia held the city this is down in the southwest that was their main their main sort of administrative uh, headquarters uh, they pulled out russia pulled out on 3rd of november they held the city for nine months and um it's now interesting that they are they're shelling their own former positions now that Building we're told was empty, not been used. I mean, it is a prime target. It's a it's a symbolic target. It's a very obvious building. Russia used it as headquarters. They might have deduced. They might have thought that um, Ukraine would would do likewise. Um, it seems that they're not that that not that obvious. The Ukrainians. So it doesn't look as if there are any casualties there. But somewhat telling that Russia is now shelling what it was was previously only a few weeks ago using as its main headquarters um, outside of the country. Big. Um, the big news is that. There is very likely that in the next day or so, the U.S. is going to agree to gift Patriot um, air defense missiles. Now, so the Patriot system, it's been around for a long time. It's first seen in Gulf One, but it's been upgraded you know, many times since then. It is a very, very capable air defense uh, system. Ukraine have been requesting it for for months now. Um, and it was deemed it was kind of in that sort of in that bracket with a TACMS you know, the army tactical uh, Army tactical missile system the very long range three hundred kilometer range very precise missile, and some of the really uh, sort of the big strategic drones that kind of family of capabilities that, that hitherto seen as, as sort of off limits or a bit too escalatory or provocative or or what have you that now that argument no longer holds water. You might remember Mig Gate many months ago when when um, uh, Well, we think the U.S. sort of put the kibosh on the plans for Poland to send MiG-29s to Ukraine. It was deemed to these capabilities were too escalatory. Well, that that I mean, that ship has sailed Um, literally. I mean, they're sending riverine craft and all sorts of stuff now. So it looks as if the U.S. is becoming more comfortable with Ukraine's use of very long range stuff. Um, so whether this means that uh, with with Patriot going that there might be some other other things in those brackets, like I say, some some strategic drones and um, maybe the attackons missile itself, uh, attackons fired through the High system, uh, we shall see. Um, we've had a question from a listener actually about how do Patriot missiles differ from HIMARS. Mars. Um, well, thanks for the question. But I mean they are they're two separate systems. So High is the high mobility artillery rocket system. It is long range. Precise artillery, so it's it's ground to ground. Um, patria is an air defense system, so it's ground to air. So it's very good at. Uh, or oh, the reason the reason people are getting so excited about Patriot. What's the special source here? The, the fact is that um, Patriot, unlike the other air defense systems, even the the very capable air systems like NASAMS and the German supplied rst and in, indeed even the German Gepard, the self propelled. Um, anti-air defense twin 35 mil cannons that just blast huge amount of lead into the air sorry that, that was actually me making a noise there of, of blasting lead into the air sorry about that um, so patriot goes a step further patriot has the capability to intercept ballistic missiles at the moment ukraine but for one very small area does not have the capability to intercept ballistic missiles now It does have the S-300V, which is a variant of the S-300 family. This is an air defence system. Uh, The S-300V has an anti-ballistic missile capability, but only if it's fitted with the the giant missile, which is a big missile and is called giant by NATO. Um, And it's got very, very small numbers of these things. So it has a tiny, a tiny capability uh, that can destroy ballistic missiles and therefore where do you put it? Do you put it up, in, up near Kiev? Do you put it up near or somewhere near your, your main sort of uh, the location of the fighters? You know, where do you think the Russian ballistic missiles are going to land? So you put your, your, your capability there accordingly. So it's a very, very difficult calculation to make. So these Patriots will be, um, will be very helpful there. And also, the, the, the capability that Ukraine have at the moment this s three hundred v it is not it is not effective against the most modern version of the Iskander ballistic missile, um, which Russia has been firing in great numbers so the nine m seven two three to be very technical the most capable version of the Iskander missile uh, the 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 system they do have the s three hundred v is uh, well it has limited effect against the toshka which is a short-range ballistic missile, and another fa- the other family of the Iskander missiles, the other 9M720 family of Iskander missiles, but not the most modern one. Um, so that's why Patriot is, is so good. It's got longer range. It's got high-resolution radars. It can, it, it's just bigger and better, and it can do more. Now, we don't know what version they're sending. The, um, the older version, called Pack 2 uh, it's older, but it's better suited for anti-aircraft fire. Um, the, more, the most modern, the Pack Three variant, is optimized for anti-ballistic missiles. Uh, we don't know which ones which ones being sent, but th- it's all it's all good. It's all good. So, I, I mean, in, in on off the face of it, that's that's a good piece of news for Ukraine. But what else is going on here? I think it's interesting to see, or to ask the question, why now? And I think this is as well as providing a high-end anti anti-air defence to Ukraine. I think this is also a message from Biden to Putin from Washington to Moscow to say look chum, these uh, these attacks on the critical national infrastructure they're, they're, uh, you know, when you are specifically targeting civilians, it's a war crime, it's out of order, you do not do this we are going to put our toe in the water here and gift some patriots, you know, if you keep going the way you're going then let's see what else what else we've got in the locker. So I think there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes here a lot of messaging um, I, I mean, th- as I've said before, a lot of these attacks are being shot down. We've heard from President Zelensky this morning saying that 13 Shahids out of 13 were hit and destroyed. They are, they are low, slow and noisy. So those in and of themselves, not perhaps not the greatest thing um, to fire. Um, but ballistic missiles are very, very capable. They go a long way and they've got a, they've got a massive warhead. So, you know, the Ukraine are, are getting better. The capability they have to interdict, or to stop. Any air raids is getting better. Um, Patriot takes it on another level, and I think I think at the same time it is also um, a message from uh, from one side one side to the other. I think I would better let Francis have a go.
0: Just before you jump in here, Francis, I'm wondering, Dom. You say people are very excited about this news. To what extent does the provision of these Patriot missiles actually give Ukraine an advantage? Is it really more of a symbolic gift, or Does it give them a better chance of actually defeating Russia?
2: Well, it's symbolic because they are so good. I mean, we're only only expecting one battery of eight launchers, with each launcher having four missiles. So, I mean, these, these aren't great numbers we're talking about, but it is a very good capability. I mean, it, the the big deal, the special source, as I've just said, is the, the anti-ballistic missile capability. But it's also very, very good at taking down um, fighter jets, which are and bombers that are launching these air, air launch cruise missiles. So what this is going to mean is it just pushes that umbrella, the the sort of, you know, go away umbrella. There might be children listening, but, the you know, the get out of here umbrella just pushes it out further. So so Russia... We know they're very reluctant to put their um, their crude aircraft um, in harm's way. They rarely go forward with their own line of troops. A lot of the a lot of the big Tupolev and Bear bombers firing the air launched cruise missiles don't leave Russian airspace or Belarusian airspace. Um, now, un- very unlikely that Ukraine. Part of the deal here would almost certainly be that Ukraine cannot. And fire these things at um, aircraft over belarus probably over mainland russia as well i don't i don't know that but it just puts firstly puts a seed of doubt into russia's mind and also any uh, any russian fighters that are operating over ukrainian airspace in the um occupied territories then you know they they are suddenly very vulnerable so they've been very reluctant to operate forward their own lines anyway this is going to just underline that threat to them and of course if you're trying to do a joint operation if you're trying to move forward on the ground you need that air that air cover to give you the, the confidence to go forward that you're not going to be you're not going to be smashed from the sky so a patriot system somewhere nearby here there who knows who knows where is going to is going to feature in the mind of russian pilots and russian air planners and they are not going to want to put their limited increasingly limited assets in harm's way so it, it's a very capable system and and that in and of itself gives it a lot of symbolism i would suggest
0: Thank you for that, Dom. Francis, what can you tell us about development on the political and diplomatic front?
3: Thanks, Claire. Good afternoon, everyone. Yes, just riffing off what Don was saying there about the Patriot missiles and to underline their significance further, there's been some stern remarks from the Kremlin already this morning as a consequence of this news. They've said that these Patriot systems would be a, quote, legitimate target, close quote, for Russian strikes against Ukraine should the United States authorise them to be delivered to support Kyiv. Well, it does sound like they have been authorised, so I think we can expect uh, um, that that to be certainly to be the case uh this is from uh, our our old friend kremlin spokesman dmitry peskov who said that the patriots would definitely be a target for russia but he said that he wouldn't comment any further on unconfirmed media reports and so quite an interesting intervention there which as i say speaks to to their significance I, i wouldn't go as far as saying it's got the russians worried but the fact they've commented on it i think is quite telling just staying on ukraine specifically uh Some interesting remarks from President Zelensky, who said that Russia's war is an ecocide, a term I've actually not heard before, but um, quite an interesting and evocative term. Um, And the reason he's called uh, used this term is describing how Ukraine has essentially been contaminated by mines, unexploded ordnance missiles as a consequence of what's been fired, but also just the sort of ecological damage that's wrought by these devastating weapons. I think probably most... Vividly are, of course, the minefields that have been laid by by the Russians, but also by both sides and other unexploded audience, which apparently now covers an area roughly the size of Cambodia. Just to speak to how much of this stuff there actually is. This was in a video address, I should say, to New Zealand's parliament, where, again, President Zelensky condemned Russia's war as I say, called it an ecocide and said that it would affect millions of people for years and then went on to implore Wellington as well as other nations to step up aid. He articulated just how much space there is. I say it's about the size of Cambodia, 174,000 square kilometers of Ukrainian territory is contaminated with mines and unexploded ordnance. Um, And as, as I say, I think this just I've touched on in the past, this fact that We haven't even. We very rarely cover the fact that this is now a country that's natural environment will be devastated for years and years to come. Listeners who are familiar with history in Europe will, of course, be aware of the fact that if you visit most battlefields in France or Belgium to this day, every year when the harvest is brought in by farmers, they always churn up. Missiles left, uh, missile shells, empty ones and unexploded ones from the First World War. If you excavate almost any major city in Europe that was bombed during the war from London to Berlin, they always find unexploded bombs that have to then have people brought in. This is the consequence of war. It's something that you can't just live with in cultural terms. It's something you live with for decades and decades to come in terms of the physical ordinance that's left behind. So I just wanted to comment on that because I think it's something that should be underlined. Moving away from Ukraine, I've spoken quite a lot about Ukraine, um, sorry, forgive me, uh, Hungary recently and uh, the updates of the tensions between them and the European Union. And there's been an, an update in this space, which is that Budapest have dropped its objections to an EU loan to Kiev after the partial unfreezing of financial support for Hungary. As I've been talking about um, for now, for over the last couple of weeks or so, the EU had blocked funds over rule of law concerns in Hungary. But uh, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz has told told the German parliament today that the EU is united in its support for Ukraine adding a sort of tacit reference to Hungary, saying that attempts to undermine the bloc's values by blocking foreign policy measures would fail. I'll read a direct quote from uh, from uh, Olaf Scholz. Anyone who thinks he can undermine the values of the EU to which every member state has committed itself by blocking its foreign and security policies will not succeed and uh, he, he goes on, nobody is suffering as much from Russia's war as the Ukrainians, and we stand firmly by their side. Now, of course, there is an irony here. Um, Schultz uh, praising EU unity and rebuking division, but some commentators would argue that Germany's approach towards Putin in recent weeks has been less consistently hawkish than other countries, such as Poland and the Baltic states. But nonetheless, I do think this is a success for the European Union in terms of getting Hungary to back down. It does show a show of force at quite an important moment when there were fissures that were starting to open up. but it has to be said that um, the most interesting developments I think today are further to the diplomatic developments are um, in the economic space. Really fascinating piece of European Union analysis that's come out today um, that's compiled research from the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, saying, uh, oh, looking into the uh, state of the Russian economy. And analyzing what they think the long term influence of the sanctions will be, and it makes really interesting reading and cooperate collaborate sorry um, with um, what the uh, the Yale report said uh, they expect that the uh, gross domestic product the GDP of russia. Uh, to drop by at least 3.4% in the best case scenario by the end of 2022 and by up to 5.5% in the worst case scenario. They believe it will continue to shrink in 2023. It's forecast to decline by 2.3% year on year in the best case scenario and by 4.5% in the worst case scenario. They say that the restrictive measures targeting the import and export of certain goods are having a really significant effect, saying that they estimate that they will, their capacity will decline significantly, that exports will continue to dec- decline while imports are expected to be slightly higher in 2022. They expect them to decrease again in 2023. And all of the top line of this is the estimates show that the Russia's inflation will increase sharply by the end of this year, reaching almost 14%. And whilst the forecast may vary for 2023, they believe it will continue to get worse. So, as I say, this really corroborates the uh, Yale paper from uh, earlier this year that said that however much the... Russian economy may appear quite stable or have the semblance of stability. The reality is far more complex and as I say an inflation rate of 14% is no joke and I think that these are the kind of signs that one watches for when you see the impact of sanctions and of a war on an economy and ones that no doubt the Kremlin will be observing for, um, um, you know, with, with great interest and concern. But it has to be said and this is the last story I know, I'm conscious I'm going on a bit here, um, that the last story But cracks remain because there's been an interesting read in Reuters today uh, about the global supply chains that are supplying Russia. It's a joint investigation by Reuters and the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, which, of course, we talked about at length last week. Uh, given another report by them which is essentially looking at the global supply chains that continue to feed Russia with key components particularly Western computer components and other electronics and the investigation looks into certain entities Um, they describe a galaxy of obscure importers and exporters that are finding routes through from Hong Kong um, via Turkey and other trading hubs saying that Russia has had to import at least 138 million million dollars worth of electronics as a consequence of sanctions, but have successfully managed to navigate the uh, sanctions in order to import some of this stuff. And uh, eventually, as I say, it goes into a lot of detail about what some of these entities are and how they operate. Some of them, interestingly, are very open about what they're doing. They're boasting about it on LinkedIn and uh, others are obviously more secretive. But the fact that they're quite open about it, I think, as I say, is quite uh, quite revealing. Uh, Talking about affiliate companies in Istanbul and how uh, this is sort of seen as the weak link, which perhaps is unsurprising given the brokerage that Turkey has been offering throughout the war so far far, and other channels as well uh, via China. Um, so exactly who you would expect to be assisting Russia in these matters. But as I say, it's a long read. So uh, I, I'm not going to be able to summarise it adequately here. But I would recommend that people do because it provides an interesting spotlight on something that's a par- perhaps a rather unanalyzed element of this war. But I'm sure Joe has some, some, some thoughts on all of this relating to the, uh, the consonants in the EU at the moment, because there's a lot going on.
0: Yes, thank you for that, Francis. And this is the perfect time to bring in Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent. It's been a while since listeners have heard from you on the podcast, Joe. What's your sense as someone who monitors the EU of the current state of play on the continent in regard to Ukraine?
1: Uh, Hi, folks, and thank you for having me back. Yes, I've been on holiday, but obviously the conflict in Ukraine is one that you can't keep away from. So I've been kind of constantly listening to my colleagues on the podcast and reading what we've put in the Telegraph and further afield. First of all, I'd like to touch on what Francis said about Russia circumnavigating sanctions. The EU are generally worried about this. They're putting together some sort of task force to look at how Russia is still getting Western components, whether it be genuine military technology, which is slightly rarer. But what we do see is them acquiring kind of m- multiple uses it's called dual use technology. So, often technology that has both application in the civilian world but also in the military world and, and we see that the for instance the Shahid 136 drones that Iran have been uh offering and giving to Russia have been kind of I, I wrote on this while I was in Ukraine um have been giving to Russia are littered with western technologies and it's not the firm's fault who produce this technology because often it's bought through illicit channels and then sent through back channels into Russia or Iran, where these drones are now being produced. And, the, yeah, the companies are none the wiser. But so the EU is putting a consensus effort together to basically look at the supply chains and monitor them and crack down where they see potential loopholes and leaks for tech getting into Russia. And a guy called Michael O'Sullivan, a an Irish diplomat who was – once the EU's ambassador to the US is dubbed as the guy who's going to take over this task force. Elsewhere, the EU are trying to agree on a ninth package of sanctions against Russia. They've um, they've sanctioned uh, a lot of Iranian entities and individuals now who are responsible for the uh, drone shipments to Russia. They are also looking at giving more military aid to... Um, to Ukraine as well as a new package of 18 billion in uh, euros in financial aid that's been unlocked thanks to Hungary dropping its uh, opposition. So um, the EU is still steadfast in supporting Ukraine and actually it's managing to do quite a lot now because uh, say the EU countries agreed to Give Hungary a whole load of its budget and this is another another topic so I won't go off into that but Hungary had a load of EU funds blocked for not respecting EU rules but in return Hungary was blocking 18 billion in financial aid to Ukraine so Hungary has agreed for that 18 billion to go in return for some of those EU funds being allowed to travel to Budapest but I'll stop there just in case you have any questions on what I've said
3: I just wanted to ask, Joe, what your general sense is at the moment of the mood in Europe as we enter this, obviously, very important winter. Do you think that Europe is as united as it was in those early months of the war? Or do you think that there are more cracks now? What's your general sense at this moment?
1: Um, I actually kind of get a sense that Europe is as united as it's ever been on this front. So. Emmanuel Macron has managed to find, he's held this pledging summit, and managed to find 1 billion euros in cash to help support Ukraine. You've got this Hungary, which is a notorious ally of Russia, probably the closest European Union country to Moscow, has uh, dropped its opposition to make sure 18 billion in funding can go to Ukraine. So we're actually at a moment in time where Europe is very united. The whole issue of sanctions, yes, they're taking time to agree this Ninth package, this ninth round of sanctions, but actually we're not seeing these massive public rows as we did over certain individuals being sanctioned or these oil and and gas embargoes um, of importing Russian fossil fuels. There was obviously massive hurrah around and furore around these discussions, but we're not seeing that anymore. We're actually in back channels. And and, and I will say that uh, this is quite interesting. So there's like a group of Sanction hawks, uh, which comprise of Poland, the Baltic states, who are obviously really keen to put pressure on Russia, because of, of probably through past experiences. But they're actually they've actually gone quiet. We're not hearing Polish ministers or Latvian ministers coming out to criticise their um, or Lithuanian minister coming out to criticise their their counterparts in the EU for being too soft, which has been historically the done thing. So actually, I think we're at a moment of of unity, which is only it's only good for um only good for the the eu but also good for ukraine so that's that's there and i'll leave it open for any more questions
2: hello Joe dom here um great to hear from you again mate a, a quickie if i may i'm just uh, i'm getting a little bit confused with all the various groups that are Coming together to provide aid, military and civilian, and money and humanitarian and all kinds of aid to Ukraine. So I just wonder if I could run past you what I think there is and get your get your thoughts. Firstly, if that's correct, and then and then any any observations. So firstly, we got we got the Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin the um, Ramstein Initiative, so named because it first met in the US air base in Ramstein in Germany. And this is the big multinational grouping gifting military hardware to Ukraine. Right, tick, I think that's correct. Secondly, you've got Ben Wallace's group, or, or it's started by Ben Wallace, the UK Defence Minister, Defence Secretary. And this is a grouping of nations to pledge money. Uh, for a joint coordination cell based in Germany to go out to the open market to buy stuff, military stuff, hardware and ammunition. And if necessary, provide the money for lines, particularly in sort of Czechoslovakia, or, sorry, the Czech Republic and Slovenia um, to restart ammunition lines. I think I'm correct there. Then you've got this EU fund, which is a big pot of cash for rebuilding and humanitarian help. And and you've just mentioned that that Emmanuel Macron has has started another fund as well and, and pledged a billion euro. Um, I have no idea what that last one is, and if it's if it's in concert with or conflict with the EU one or any of the others. So is that how you see the landscape at the moment? And if so, what on earth is this thing from President Macron? You're, you're right, and I am
1: always confused by. What is out there in terms of people pledging? So we we have the the Ramstein NATO, plus other countries I think they don't like being named, but like Japan. Um, then you've got obviously Ben Wallace's, which is about buying finding cash to buy products on the open market, military products. So for instance, um, I think Britain used cash to help buy certain artillery batteries that were then donated to ukraine you've got the eu has its own weapons fund which is basically when an eu country donates a weapon to ukraine it can then pull take from this pool of eu money to basically then replenish its own stock you have then you i was talking about an 18 billion package from the EU, which is another separate pot of money for Ukraine, but that's not for military purposes. That's for financial aid to help Ukraine balance its books, to help pay pensions, help help pay civil servants, help uh, fund reconstruction, or however they're they willing to spend it, but it's not for military purposes. Um, then you have this fund from Emmanuel Macron, and it and it's the same for all politicians. They like... To look like they're doing something, they like to be leading something, they like to have their name plastered all over it. And Emmanuel Macron's fund is about gatherings. I think he went around French companies uh, in this round of asking for donations. And I think he spoke to about seven or eight hundred companies on Tuesday, and they managed to get a billion euros from them. And that is aimed at the reconstruction of Ukraine and helping and this is in inverted commas ukrainians resist through the winter so it's an open ended um pool of money which say zelensky said that he needed at least 800 million to cope with russia's energy terrorism um so it could be for generators it could be for maybe is it going to be used for air defense systems it leaves that but then is it going to be for helping buying people windows as i've often spoken about on this podcast um because a lot of ukrainians still don't have windows going in well now in the, the midst of the the harsh winter that they have there um and i think so i think i've explained it and uh but yeah by all means fire back at me
2: <laughs> yeah thanks uh, i went i went fire back at you i don't disagree with anything you've said there but it sounds as if the thing that president macron's trying to get off the ground is already catered for through other channels so that and combined with some of the recent activity of him speaking to Putin and some of his earlier comments and blah, 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 it it just it just, you know, you could you could look at this and think he's, he's coming from a position of insecurity. It seems you're right. Politicians love attaching their name to, to big things. And that's great. You know, if, if Ukraine benefit from it, that's all good. But it, how how what legs are there in this? It's, it's a bit sort of ad hoc. But hey, it's all it's all good if it's going in that direction. But I mean, is there an insecurity there from from president macron and i mean if this is just at the whim of politicians how likely is it how how what's the what's happening domestically in france and is he getting any heat from brussels for him that th- this might continue or is he just going to suddenly stop it when he comes up with another great idea it just seems a little bit a little bit clunky really from in diplomacy in, d- in diplomatic terms from macron or am i completely misreading it um on this one, because
1: we often, so the EU funding comes from governmental structures, so it comes from France's budget, it comes from Germany's budget. Um, the NATO stuff, again, it comes from individual countries. Uh, ben Wallace's comes from government budget. This is actually, I think, Emmanuel Macron's aim is to harness the French economy, going to private companies asking for cash um, to support Ukraine, which isn't catered for in any other forum uh, so it is, I guess, a tad different to what other governments have come up with. Um, but you're you're right on the Emmanuel Macron insecurities thing, and I think he wants to be seen to be doing lots for Ukraine because he is often, and he does often, open himself up for criticism from speaking to Vladimir Putin. The most as the most regular, he he's framed himself as Europe's interloc- interlocutor with the um with the Kremlin. So, yeah, most of Emmanuel Macron's, while they are incredibly helpful for Ukraine, I do look at them through a slight guise where, what is he up to? Is he he trying to curry favour for mistakes he's made in the past, Um, whether it be being too slow to provide weapons to Ukraine, not believing the Russians were about to invade, or being a bit clumsy when he speaks to Vladimir Putin. There's been cases where he often referred to a ceasefire, which we, I know, Dom, you've often spoken about how that is not great for the Ukrainians because it freezes the war in place with Russians where they are and gives them time to reconstitute their stricken forces. So, yeah, I'm sure it will be appreciated by everyone, but Macron probably does have to be a a tiny bit careful not to cut across other funding platforms, whether it be through the G7, G20, NATO, EU. Um, But it's a bilateral effort. It's, It's French only, so... Um, I'm sure the Ukrainians will appreciate the billion, and let's not criticise Macron too much for doing the right thing. I think on this occasion.
0: Thanks, Joe. Moving on slightly, we uh, you visited Ukraine recently, where you were reporting on the ground during a historic and really significant strategic time for the country. If you cast your mind back to the very start of your visit, where were you reporting at the beginning, and what were your expectations before you arrived?
1: Oh I mean, it is a it's it feels like a, a long time ago. So it's what seven weeks I think since I first touched down. And I touched down in Kyiv to start with, and that was my my goal there was to speak to the the people in power, whether it be government ministers. Um we had an interview with Vitaly Klitschko, former world heavyweight champion boxer, but now the mayor of Kyiv. Um and then I wanted to also see the likes of Butcher and Irpin, these Seeing these harrowing scenes from the early days of of the war in Ukraine, and I wanted to look at them with my own eyes and and tell the story of what it was like to live be living there and currently. After focus has changed, the likes of uh, Song to Kharkiv to other places in the country. Because um, and one of, one of the things that I observed, and I think I I've mentioned on previous podcasts, was the fact that in Kiev the war. Didn't seem to be going on uh, as such. Yes, you had these daily, sometimes multiple times a day, these air raid sirens. Yes, there were missiles and drones flying around, but of a large part of the day, people were just going about their everyday business. Uh, McDonald's had just reopened um, in some areas in Kiev when I was there, and it was it was incredible. We, I walked past a, a group of students who were queuing for their first Big Macs uh, since the beginning of the war, and that just that just that return to normal normalization uh, was just was just a happy moment for them um and then that was it's kind of great to see parts of the country returning to their kind of former glories um it, it was great to see how um the creative industry and like local creatives because kyiv is full of kind of great designers artists musicians um who work in communications in like these new high tech areas like app design and stuff like that and they're 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 finding ways to raise money through putting these incredible murals on the side of buildings um through um i spoke to a a, we went to a event put on by a local dj shasha schultz who's one of who owns one of ukraine's biggest record stores as well and he was raising money through putting on club nights which were slightly hampered by the fact there is a a 11 o'clock curfew in kiev um but then we obviously moved across the country um we visited Zelensky's hometown, Krivi um which was at the time at the rear of the Kherson counteroffensive. We went up to Kharkiv to see what it was like to, for people living within 20, 30 miles of the Russian border. Um, and then we were lucky enough to witness the jubilation of Kherson. Um, we got in there a day or two after it had been liber- liberated. We saw President Zelensky. He turned up and gave a speech. and Precise, proceeded over the official flag raising ceremony, so it's was, it was great to see moments like that and see ukrainians happy um but obviously that is probably changing it was quite warm when I was out there um now we're in the midst of this really bitter winter, and we need to like tell the story of um, what was what's going on now and how people are living through this winter and what support they need i guess so it's um I have always been very fond of Ukraine since my previous visits post February 24th um, and it was it was great to be back. Um, the people are some of the most, like they offer great hospitality. I couldn't tell you how many babushkas offered offered me tea, coffee and cakes in their home while speaking and telling their stories about what it was like to live through the war. So um, yeah, it was um, sad to, to, to be leaving a, a kind of country at the time when there's so many great stories to be told and um that are also play a, a kind of significant role in making sure Ukrainians get the support they need uh, from foreign governments and foreign charities and stuff um but I'll stop there and leave you with any questions
0: thanks joe just going back to the liberation of herson i'm really curious i know you were around the area sort of before that very historical retake by ukraine i'm wondering did you- know, Did you feel like it was actually going to happen? What was that like and also what was that like to report on as a journalist
1: um yes, we knew it was happening you speak to you speak to soldiers on the ground and you see a bit more kind of military activity of people getting ready to move the front line forward as such um We'd obviously heard stories for about for about two for about two weeks we'd heard stories about how um Russian soldiers were getting. Kit out of the city, crossing the Dnipro River to get onto the left bank. um, Away, and it was it was um, it was long-winded process. So it wasn't a shock when it happened, but obviously you always take things with a pinch of salt when you're because there's this operational secrecy, uh, the fog of war, which we often talk about. So you don't, you don't. There's nothing is ever a certain. And then going um, to the moment of actually covering it. it was a it's a it was a genuinely historic story and I've, I've covered plenty of those in in my time at the telegraph in my time in brussels for the last almost five years um including brexit coronavirus now the war in ukraine and i, I guess as journalists we don't often have that barrage of massive stories which are global news stories coming one after the other um but the what was i think the most pleasurable about being in her son at the time and was the fact that people were happy there um we we I, I remember an old lady came up to me and she was like oh you're speaking english through my translator out there eugene um and she asked oh you're are you american and i was like no 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 i'm english british um but she wanted to know about the results of the midterm elections in the u.s and I said, oh, it looks like the Democrats have done well. And she almost shed a, a tear of joy because she knew that meant more weapons and more support were coming from Joe Biden's administration. Um, we bumped into young people who had locked themselves in their homes for for nearly eight or nine months because they were scared of what was outside, the Russians and the Chechen soldiers that were walking or sometimes drunken on on the street corner with their guns and were known to have taken pot shots at people walking by or... People being dragged from cars and stuff. It was it was a, it was a terrifying time for people living there. So they they were just amazed that they can come and speak to people. It was a, like everyone wants to be very social. So it's, it was it was a um it's it's kind of not for our moment of journalism at that point. It's but it's about sharing a a moment of celebration with the Ukrainians and with for, for the plight that they put up. And but I think what was always conscious in the back of my mind um, and there was outgoing and. incoming artillery fire and i think so while there was this moment of celebration there's always that trepidation of we are actually generally on the front line of the war the the russian soldiers were probably less than five miles away from us um at that point and we were well within their artillery range um so the it was a a short-lived almost celebration i think and but to be part of that initial celebration was was incredible and it's one of those great experiences that we will uh, the people on the ground there will look back to in 10 15 20 years time and say i was i was there moment which i'll always be thankful for being able to share with ukrainians living there
0: yeah exactly thank you for that joe really fascinating account i believe you have uh, a question you'd like to come in on with uh, francis
3: Yeah, just really interesting hearing your experience, Joe. And I think I'm right in saying you're the first journalist from The Telegraph to see Zelensky in person since the start of the war. I just wanted to hear your reflections on that. I mean, did you feel you were in the presence of a great historical figure or did you feel actually that in the context of the moment and having followed him so much in recent months that he, he sort of felt like you knew him already I mean I'm just interested in your experience of that and perhaps the sense of whether it did really feel historic or whether it felt actually something that as I say had been a long time coming.
1: Um, I didn't know I was the first uh, Telegraph journalist to be in the, the presence of President Zelensky and I was I was probably five metres away from him behind a, a line of Special Forces heavies who were equipped to the nines with uh, lots of uh, scary assault rifles and beer. Um, first in, my first impressions with him, he is, he is generally tiny, he's very short, um, but he holds this certain, I, I guess like a lot of kind of great comedians and great film stars, he has this aura about him. and And he's taken that role across from his time as a comedian as an actor and using it well as a politician he um he i didn't realize how good his english language skills were because we've we've seen him in videos um when they welcome politicians in uh so when boris johnson used to fly in uh get the train in to ukraine and Kyiv to to meet him you would see him saying oh hello welcome welcome to Kyiv, but you'd never hear him speaking fully in english but this was a moment that he wanted to show off to the world um, and there was lots of journalists and we were in this press huddle shouting questions at him and America had managed to get his question across uh, saying, what's next for Ukraine? And Zelensky, being the comedian, joked, well, we're not going to Moscow, are we? Because that was obviously one of the accusations that Russia uses that um, Ukraine is threatening Russia's territorial integrity. So it's it was interesting to see him... In as such as and see this guy who's got this massive aura about him and we 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 hold him up as this great wartime leader and he's he's done a fantastic job. But I think what was more fascinating on the streets, I was asking people, oh, what's it like to see Zelensky? And they were like, We're more happy to see Ukrainian soldiers. So I think in my dispatch that I wrote from Herson on that day, it was basically the theme of it was Zelensky might have been given a hero's welcome, but the real stars of the show were the Ukrainian soldiers in town, and they were were the, um we've got photos of them. I think they're they're available on the telegraph website of soldiers being given bouquets of flowers, kids were throwing themselves at Ukrainian soldiers looking for hugs. There were there were there were there were women asking for photos with them for their Instagram pages and stuff. It was they they were the real stars of the show that day. And um I think if you speak to a lot of the Ukrainian, they will continue to be the stars of the show, despite no matter how much of a great role President Zelensky is playing.
0: Yeah, absolutely fascinating to hear your um, experiences there, Joe. Just one more from me. I'm conscious that we're coming to the end of our time this afternoon. You visited the missile graveyard in Kharkiv, where inspectors are sourcing spent missiles and artillery um, shells fired at the city in the hope... That they will one day serve as evidence for war crimes committed by Russia. Many of us will have seen the quite striking photographs of these collections lined up. I was just wondering, what was it like to see the extent of that m- missile graveyard in the flesh? Did you sort of have a physical response being there? What was the mood like there? I'm just really curious what it what that was like for you.
1: Um. So yeah, it was it, it was uh, fascinating to see because. Um... One thing you do get um, driving around Ukraine, you see a lot of buildings that have been completely, and I, I always use the um, phrase in my journalistic work as uh, battle-scarred, war-scarred, missile-stricken um, buildings. But you never, you, you, you obviously, you, it's very rare that you see what's actually caused all the carnage. And it was silent because it was in the middle of, not in the middle of nowhere, I can't, I, I've been asked by the people that took us there not to reveal exactly where it is. Um, but it wasn't in a busy part of Harkiv to put it that way. Um, it was all very methodical. It was um, like the remnants of shells lined up. They had a section where the Iskander ballistic missiles and or what was left of them, because there is often not a lot of the weapon left after it impacts and explodes because of, the nature of how devastating it is. Um, then they had a bit a section where there were land mines, anti-tank mines, anti-personnel mines. Um, but most of most of it was kind of artillery shells, and it was it was all very methodical. Um, and you walked round and felt you, you questioned how you always questioned how this damage is dealt. Um, but then when you lay this out, and it was over a, a vast sort of area, probably 100 metres by 100 metres squared, um, and it was just almost wall-to-wall remnants of missiles, shells, rockets, whatever they are. Um, and then that, that paints the picture, and that's what I, I tried to do with my piece from there. of This is how Russia has been targeting civilians, been targeting military uh, targets and stuff like that is it was bizarre because it's like putting a name to a face you're now putting a a rocket to a particular uh attack and that was one thing that was quite interesting each ordnance uh missile whatever we call them for now was labeled and it had essentially a uh, if you've ever worked in a a um a shop before you'll probably be familiar with the term SKU code which is a unique code given to an item which when you go through the barcode system it then pulls up all the information and puts it through the till system they they had their own codes written on them and we were told that if you enter that code into a database being being filled up and built by the ukrainian authorities it would tell you exactly when the attack happened who was killed what was the damage dealt where it was and all the information so it was it was it was Essentially, it served as its two purposes. It's a historic, a sort of a monument to the deadly effect of these weapons. But it also is an active sort of evidence room where these war crimes investigators will, the prosecutors will take, um, will have all the information there. But they also then make sure they bring foreign investigators to help foreign experts to help uh, build up a case for Russian war crimes, uh, against Russian war crimes that have been committed in Ukraine. Um yes, yeah, so it was it, it was a it was a fascinating visit. Um it's a piece that I recommend everyone go back and look at because it the pictures in it are fantastic by a photographer Heathcliff O'Malley, um, who actually managed to get a drone above it and so he can show you the the scale of the of the of the what has been used to to strike um ukrainian targets by russians um and i think the, the the ukrainians were keen just to to show us that because it is actually a reminder that there is a this huge war going and a lot of russian efforts are being used to target civilian infrastructure which and homes like apartment blocks hospitals and schools and stuff like that so i think it's that ever constant reminder that this is what Russia's doing and the ukrainians are keen to show that off
0: Thanks for that, Joe. We're coming to the end of our time this afternoon. So if I can go to you first for uh, final thoughts, please, Francis, briefly, if you can.
3: (laughs) Thank you, Claire. Well, I'll do my best. One of the common refrains one hears from certain critics of Ukraine is around this issue of corruption in the country. And it's something that President Zelensky has actually been sensitive to himself and the Ukrainians that we've had on the podcast are sensitive to, too, and have talked about how they want... The war in Ukraine to offer a reset for for the economy, for the country's attitudes towards Europe, and on all of these issues, uh, it offers a renaissance to many. And just on this issue, it's been an interesting story that President Zelensky has hailed the dissolution of a controversial Kiev court run by a very controversial judge. And he's using this as an example of how it is possible to end a history of corruption in the country and wage war on Russia at the same time time so the judge concerned is a man called pavlo volka i apologize if i've mispronounced his name why is he controversial what well, he's often seen in the country as being a symbol of injustice and lawlessness and legal impunity in ukraine and cases against him for years have been blocked and sabotaged by prosecutors investigators and other courts But finally, he's been charged with a usurpation of power, an obstruction of justice, organised crimes and an abuse of authority. But for all of this going on, he remained the head of this court. And finally, as I say, through an act of parliament, Zelensky has managed to close his court down and is is, is imposing sanctions on Volker whilst working with uh, the Americans. So as I say, what's the significance? This is a complicated issue in many ways. It's essentially that Zelensky is being true to his word on wanting to stamp out the accusation of corruption in the country. And what has been largely it has to be said due to russian influence on the on ukraine uh, a, a history of uh, of issues around corruption and injustice and him being able to say this i don't believe is a cynical attempt to show the west that he is uh, being serious on this the fact is this is a story buried in 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 a rather obscure newswire it's not a major front page story but I think it's an example of how this is really going on behind closed doors. There are real systematic attempts to change things. And so I think we should watch this space very closely. And as I say, I think it's a positive development and one that not only Zelensky will welcome. As I say, it's been something he's been wanting to do for years, but many Ukrainians will welcome too. That this is the country that they want to to live in.
0: Thank you, Francis. Over to you, Dom. What are your final thoughts for today?
3: Thanks, Claire. Well,
2: I'd take us back to the expected imminent announcement of this gift of a patriot missile battery from the us to ukraine uh not so much for the military significance of it but as i mentioned earlier on what's going on in the background if indeed there there isn't i don't think i'm overreading this but um, let me know if you think i am I, this is this is interesting if this is a message and if it is an escalation a soft c a soft i can't spell soft e escalation sorry um then what's russia's response because Arguably, there's not a lot they can do. They can't sort of ramp up the nuclear rhetoric because we've had all that before, and and they've sort of dialed that down a little bit in the face of uh, opposition from China and India uh, and elsewhere. So, so what what happens? And and if if there's nothing here, then is this a route now for the US? To to press or another lever that they've, they've suddenly discovered is at their disposal so if uh, uh, the, ne- the next egregious uh, atrocity that's discovered is that the signal then for the US to release attackums or, or the grey eagle drone or you know, some, something else so I just think I, I think Russia's response to Patriot if indeed it happens in the next 24 hours as we expect is going to be very very interesting um, or their the further response on top of what Peskov's already said and then and then the assessment we'll have a think about this the assessment of of what then what that means is it- significant and is this a new lever at um, at the 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 west and and the u s in particular uh, disposal?
0: Thank you for that dom and finally to you, Joe, what would you like to leave our listeners with
1: um I was also going to um go back to the patriot issue um but also just just look at the the why Um, Ukraine has suddenly come into possession of or going to come into possession of a very high tech bit of kit. Um, I want to look back to a time, a moment in time when I was sitting in a hotel in Odessa typing up my notes for the day and the news came through that a missile had landed in Poland, killing two farmers near the, the border with Ukraine. Um there were lots of rumors that it was a Russian missile or rocket or so a direct escalation um which could have triggered NATO to get more involved um but that was quickly scuppered um but at the time Poland were offered more they've already got i think eighty between twelve and eighteen patriot systems in their board in inside the country as part of NATO security efforts and air defense efforts by nato um but they were offered they were offered more um and they were they were due these i think two systems were due to be sent to germany um which then were then offered to poland to help bolster but poland came out and said no let's give them to ukraine let's put them inside ukraine and maybe that might help us uh if cuz you by ukraine being able to defend itself that actually again creates a buffer between uh the war and nato itself and nato countries so i think um We should be uh, looking at Poland's influence in this decision, and it's not off the cuff. It's um, a long-term thing that's been happening since the middle of November of probably Poland saying, look, we don't want extra patriots, but why don't you give them to Ukraine?
0: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Jaden Irving.